are listening to the Mental Gains Podcast. I am host Verna Mullins. And I'm host Matt Russell. We have a special guest to interview on this episode. Verna and I, we sit down with Dr. Rajiv Parinja. Dr. Parinja is a psychiatrist at Mercy Health, as well as host of the podcast Brain Politics for WGTE. He's fascinated with evolutionary psychology, and his podcast is really unique in that uh, it explores evolutionary psychology through storytelling, going through systems of the body and the brain, their interactions, sometimes their conflicts with each other. The, the storytelling, the, the music, the format is really special, and we spoke to him about trauma, about trends in mental health, and about his podcast, Brain Politics. So here it is, Dr. Rajiv Parinja. Dr. Parinja, in your own words, define trauma. Sure. Uh, so when I think of trauma, and I'm going to use a broad definition here, a trauma is any adverse event in your life that causes a lasting negative impact on you psychologically and physiologically. And I want to qualify the term lasting. Uh, it may last for days and weeks, or it may last indefinitely. Some of these minor traumatic events may not require intervention, and you may recover from them uh, over the course of time, but others may require treatment, and without that, they may not get better. Anyone can be affected by trauma. Uh, there will be those that argue that, you know, nobody really goes through life without having traumatic events. You know, if you live long enough, you will go through multiple adverse events in your life. Um, you know, you'll have bereavements, uh, loved ones will die, uh, you might be um, in um, interpersonal situations which are very stressful. Um, but when I think of my patient population, um, I see a certain populations that are very commonly affected by trauma. The first, of course, is veterans who have been in battle. We see on our inpatient units, a lot of patients, probably the majority of patients, have experienced childhood trauma. And uh, this is impacting their mental health at the time that we are seeing them in their adulthood. Um, and it is sometimes the cause of the mental illness that they're experiencing. I also see a lot of victims of domestic violence. And um, then there is a group of patients who might have been in accidents, such as motor vehicle accidents. Could you talk about how is PTSD different than trauma? So, um, so trauma is something that happens to you. And PTSD is a mental illness that results from that trauma. So PTSD is a very specific kind of mental illness in that you can't really diagnose PTSD unless you say that the patient had a trauma. Mm -hmm. um, now, not everybody who has a trauma will get PTSD. Um, anybody who has a trauma may get certain um, problems that follow on from the trauma. And typically, for PTSD, we say we are only going to diagnose it if the problems persist one month after the traumatic event. So that means that you know, the adverse reaction from the trauma is not resolving in mm -hmm. a short span of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and PTSD uh, symptoms can persist indefinitely for uh, a lot of people. PTSD can be treated, but the most severe end of PTSD can be quite tricky and difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about PTSD, um, 
one of the things that just I find staggering, you know, if you, if you think of the Vietnam War, which caused a lot of PTSD, a lot of research into PTSD, the number of people who have committed suicide after returning from the Vietnam War is twice the number of people who were killed in Vietnam. Wow. So, um, you know, and, and a lot of these people have committed suicide decades after coming back from war. And, you know, it is, it is difficult to say, well, it is the Vietnam War that caused this problem for every one of them, but for probably the majority of them, it was at least a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. And, and say, the comparing PTSD from veterans returning from war, and let's say people coming out of long-term addiction, yeah. um, do the signs and symptoms of how their PTSD manifest, is it a little universal in, in how PTSD manifests in, in people no matter where their trauma comes from? So um, the symptoms of PTSD can be different for different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people will have a lot more uh, nightmares, flashbacks. Um, others will have those but have a lot of anxiety and depression when they are not experiencing those nightmares and flashbacks as well. Um, but um, the other piece, um, now that we're on addiction, is that um, somebody who's had trauma will not necessarily experience life normally in the way that other people do, they will have anhedonia, an inability to feel joy normally. Mm -hmm. They might have higher levels of anxiety, depression, difficulty sleeping. So their life experience can be quite terrible on a day-to-day basis. And then they find that if they are using something um, that is an addictive substance, and that could be pretty much anything that is an addictive substance, they get respite from that life experience. They feel relief from anxiety. They might uh, get some pleasure, some euphoria even, and that makes them more vulnerable to addiction. Mm. And not only that, the people with trauma who have addiction, in my experience, tend to be harder to treat because when you get them off the addiction, they again go back to experiencing life in that way which is sort of not fulfilling, it's empty, it is distressing. And so the obvious answer which has worked for them before Mm. is returning to something that is an abusable substance. How does trauma affect a person? So that is a very broad question. I'll try and talk about the different things that it can do. And, you know, there are people who are researching specifically many of those areas. So there's a lot more information out there than what I'm going to give in this answer. But it can affect your brain, so your neurobiology, and also your physiology uh, in a number of ways. And it depends on the time that the trauma occurred. So it affects children differently from adults. And what can be traumatic for a child may be very different from an adult. And the youngest children have different needs. They need a lot more attention and uh, care compared to older children and adults. And for the youngest children, the simple act of not meeting those needs adequately and consistently, so neglecting them, can be traumatic. Mm -hmm. And that can be quite difficult to recover from. But trauma can affect your immune system. It can 
affect your endocrine system, your gastrointestinal system. Trauma can put you at a higher risk of getting cardiovascular events down the road because you're just more uh, sympathetically activated as you go through life. So uh, it's a, it is a very wide and pervasive effect it can have on your psychology and physiology. Uh, it can make people more prone to a range of illnesses, including um, many um, autoimmune conditions. It can change your genetic expression. So you have the genes that you have, but the way in which your genes are activated can change depending on trauma. Mm. And that information can be passed down uh, through generations. And so far, we know that up to two further generations who have not experienced that trauma may still be affected. And you can see those markers in their genes, something called epigenetics, you know, how the genes are uh, switched on and off can be affected. Um, It can affect how the nervous system is organized. So there is a difference in the way uh, people are able to regulate emotions in the way they are able to organize behavior. So people who have experienced trauma have higher emotional reactivity. Um, They have difficulty inhibiting what we call prepotent responses, a reaction that comes out. You're not able to stop it that easily. And they also have difficulty with executive functions. So things that require complex planning and thinking, delaying gratification, all of those things can be difficult for people who are uh, affected by trauma. Mm I have a follow-up question to that. Um, I was running uh, a trauma group with our clients at the Connection Center um, for about six weeks, and a big topic was um, if you've been affected by trauma, are you more likely to be re-traumatized? Yes. So um, uh, in terms of what makes people vulnerable to a particular event being traumatic for them, if you have suffered from trauma, Um, that makes you more likely to be traumatized by a relatively minor event, and certainly from a major event. The symptoms that you get from that are likely to be more severe and more persistent as well. And then their other concern was, how can I prevent that from happening? Having treatment for the trauma that you've endured may make you a little more resilient uh, to future traumatic events, but I don't think that you can really prevent those from happening or prevent that trauma from causing you to feel uh, the effects that come from being traumatized. Mm. What is the relationship between trauma and mental illness? So, uh, you know, trauma is linked to a range of mental illnesses. I mean, PTSD, uh, we talked about in PTSD, is a diagnosis that we make following a traumatic event that causes symptoms to persist But uh, trauma is linked with anxiety, depression. Um, Some of the more severe illnesses, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, are often triggered by trauma. And sometimes patients will relapse into uh, an episode of those illnesses because of a traumatic event. Trauma is closely linked with addiction. Um, And um, a range of personality difficulties arise from trauma in childhood. Mm. So many personality disorders, if you think of borderline personality disorder, typically, you know, it would be rare to get that diagnosis without um, clear childhood traumatic difficulties Mm. uh, or events in your childhood that were traumatic. Mm -hmm. Why do people with similar traumatic experiences sometimes respond so differently? Like some people are more resilient than other people or doesn't seem to have as much effect. That's right. Um, And, you know, 
uh, in terms of the vulnerability to trauma, uh, there are genetic factors. Certain genes uh, make you more predisposed to having a mental illness, and those genes will make you more likely to have a mental illness in response to a trauma. And, you know, um, if you think of a population, um, there is going to be a distribution of genes. And I hesitate talking about this because I don't want people to think, oh, well, you know, this person has something wrong with them because they became affected by this trauma, which may not have affected another person. Mm-hmm. You know, a range of the genes that make you vulnerable to mental illness also offer you advantages, which is why they are present in the population. And if you think of the population, the genes are distributed, uh, you know, probably in most cases on like a bell-shaped curve because people with each one of those genes may have a certain advantage in a specific area. So what we know, for example, is that people who are more artistic uh, are also more prone to uh, mental illnesses uh, because perhaps there's an overlap in the genes that make you uh, sort of experience emotion more richly which allows you to be um, a better actor, a better script writer, uh, maybe uh, a better musician, but then also um, a traumatic event may make you vulnerable to a mental illness. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't know that there's anybody who is not going to be traumatized by a sufficiently severe traumatic event. There are people that I've seen, certainly uh, the veterans, you know, and I look at their history and they seem to be very resilient and there really hasn't been anything really bad happened to them until they went into battle and they have severe PTSD that is you know affecting their quality of life um, while they sleep and while they're awake every waking minute mm-hmm. so it is n- it is not that there is going to be people who are uh, just not vulnerable to trauma um, but some people are more vulnerable than others your history of trauma, and we touched on this a little bit, your history of previous trauma makes you more vulnerable to symptoms of trauma that you experience down the road. Mm-hmm. In your experience, what are some of the most effective treatments for those who have experienced trauma? So, you know, in terms of dealing with trauma, and I'm going to talk about this in two components, uh, the things that you can do as a person who is affected by trauma, and the things that can be done by a professional. So let's start with the treatment part, which is something done by a professional. So there are medications that can be used to treat PTSD, and things like depression, anxiety, which may be intermingled or triggered by traumatic events. Um, You can certainly treat bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and other severe mental illnesses with medications. Uh, The medications, there are many medications that have been tried and found to be helpful. There really isn't one medication that stands head and shoulders above the others. Uh, Typically, people will start with SSRIs, and um, a good provider will work with you over time to find a combination of medication that's helping you and also not causing side effects uh, that are affecting the quality of your life. And... In psychiatry, probably in all specialties to some extent, but in psychiatry, there is an element of trial and error. We can't really know which particular medication will work well for a person. Uh, We try the common ones, see how they go. There are those adjustments that are done over a span of time, over a period of time. And then we make changes as needed. So medications are one piece. Um, The other piece is therapy. And... uh, you know, I would encourage people to work with a therapist who is trained in uh, 
treating patients with trauma who's got some experience in that. Some people specialize in trauma. So um, find a therapist that you work with. But what I find is that if people don't get benefit, they often get uh, disappointed, frustrated, and then they drop out of therapy completely. Mm. So uh, therapy is a little tricky because the main thing in therapy that determines how much improvement you will get from therapy is something called therapeutic alliance. So it's a kind of relationship, it's a therapeutic relationship that you form with a person, which is going to last at least several weeks and you'll be seeing them several hours. And um, just like any other relationship, you know, somebody may be a great fit for another person, but may not be a great fit for you. Mm-hmm. And if you find that the therapist you're working with, you're just not, you know, getting the benefit you need, you're not feeling that connection, you're not getting that therapeutic alliance, you would want to move on and see another therapist and not give up on therapy. My analogy in terms of finding somebody is, you know, um, if you're going to maybe build a house, you know, Uh, you're not going to go to the first builder and say, okay, you're going to build my house. Mm -hmm. You might want to, you know, um, before you sign the contract, you will be seeing one, two, three people. And you might find the very first one is just, you know, he seems to be just the right person for you, but it may not be. So starting out with therapy, I tell people, you know, uh, expect to see up to three therapists. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be seeing the first person and you say, well, you know, this person and I click, we can talk. He, he's, uh, he or she is listening to me, and I can feel that we are going to have a great therapeutic alliance. That's awesome. You know, you can stick with that person. But if you feel that, I'm not sure. Th- I'm not sure this is going to work. You can ask them questions before you see them for long-term therapy and, and then go on to the next person and the next person. And, and most people will find somebody they like once they are, you know, once they've seen three people. Mm-hmm. And they it it is them. like going on dates. It's not a long-term relationship, but it is a relationship, and it is relatively long-term. It's not the same as seeing maybe, you know, uh, an ER doctor for a, for a problem. You know, that is a very specific problem. doesn't really matter so much which doctor you saw, and they can all deal with the same problem in the same way. Therapists are different. You would want to take your time, make sure it is somebody that you trust, um, and you're going to be able to develop a, a therapeutic alliance with. Mm-hmm. So being able to see three different therapists is, is awesome. Um, especially if you have private insurance, you yeah. know, that's a lot yeah. easier. But for a lot of the clientele that we work with, mm-hmm. they, you know, are in community mental health. Yeah. And so basically they are assigned whoever right. is available. Yeah. And sometimes there's a shortage. There is, yes. Um, so what kind of advice would you have for those people who have, you know, specific um, health insurance that aren't covered by everyone? So again, if you find that the therapist you are working with um, is somebody that you're just not able to connect with, I would ask them uh, to say to to send you to somebody who they think would be a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, most of them are good professionals, and they would recognize that for whatever reason you're not finding a great therapeutic alliance with this particular client. And knowing what they know about you, they might have somebody within that same community mental health system who takes your insurance who you could go to. So you may still have those options. And then again, uh, you know, if you don't have it, then maybe give it some time. And sometimes, you know, a therapeutic alliance will develop over a few sessions, um, even if you're not feeling it the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there is a component of, you know, there are certain standard techniques, um, which may be from CBT that you can use, which uh, there might be handouts, you can still get that information and try and use it uh, and still get some benefit, which may not be optimal, but it is still some improvement in your mental health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some resources for those who have experienced trauma? 
So um, yeah. So uh, so again, going back to um, um, the first question that I was answering, where I said the treatment piece has therapy and and medication, which is something that will be done by a professional that you see. Um, what are the things that you can do yourself um, to take care of you uh, that may help you recover from trauma? And this is probably needed. It's important. It may even be essential, but it may not be all that you need to do to get you better. Um, so, so this may not be sufficient to get you in a state of remission and cure. But so the, the, the data we have says that people do better when they have connections with other people, um, especially people who are compassionate towards them, people with whom they can open up uh, and talk. So I think in terms of looking after yourself, you would want to reach out to the people that you have in your life who may be willing to listen to you, to uh, give you some compassion. These could be your parents, your siblings, your friends. Mm-hmm. Now, increasingly, we live in a world where, you know, again, we have access to social media and resources. Um, there might be telegroups of people who are suffering from your kind of illness, who have experienced your kind of trauma. And that may be very helpful. Um, you know, in, in my experience on the inpatient unit, I always find it remarkable how much benefit sometimes patients get from talking to other patients. Mm-hmm. Because they say, you know, what happened to me happened to other people as well. There are other people who are suffering like me. I am not weird or abnormal. This is happening to a lot of people, and that makes me feel that I'm okay. And sometimes when they share their experiences and they get compassionate attention in groups from other people, that can be very helpful. So making that connection, talking to people, maybe finding a group, all of that is helpful. And then um, there are resources, and in my mind, um, uh, there is... uh, a Compassionate Mind Foundation. You can Google that term, Compassionate Mind Foundation, and the website is, uh, I think, compassionatemind.co.uk, uh, which has a list of resources. Uh, there is a, a researcher called Professor uh, Paul Gilbert in England who came up with compassion-focused therapy. And the way he conceptualizes this is, so you are you know, going through life, and normally you are having many events which are unpleasant or not to your liking. And typically, uh, you will have early in your childhood a parent, a caregiver, who will help you cope with that with some compassion. And that is the normal process of growing up. And that compassion allows you to learn those coping skills, internalize those coping skills, and also be compassionate to yourself. And when that, that is deficient, uh, then you find it hard to be compassionate to yourself. If you have had abrasive, traumatic parenting, um, negative uh, talk from your parents repeatedly, you can internalize that. And you can traumatize yourself by saying the same things that have been said to you again and again. Mm-hmm. And learning to be compassionate to yourself can allow you to heal. And conceptually, I find that very sound. And I think the research data that we have, which is uh, quite large, but probably not uh, you know, in the same uh, sort of uh, volume as we have for things like CBT, um, it is there. It is compelling, uh, and some of the, that information is available. And you know, when you are by yourself, you're not seeing a therapist, but you're thinking of what it is that you can do. Um, you might find some ideas there. But I think the key is to treat yourself with kindness. Um, you know, um, and um, with 
some some forgiveness for your suffering, not to blame yourself and judge yourself for feeling the way you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And that is something I talk about in my podcast. You know, emotions are peculiar. They can be um, illogical at times, but they are what they are. They arise automatically. They are very quick to arise. We often um, feel the emotion before we even know what caused it. So to say to yourself or anybody else, well, you should not have felt that way, makes no sense because that is not possible. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. going to feel what you're going to feel. Now, once you know that you're feeling that, the, you have the capacity to regulate. So it's not that you're going to always spiral into an emotional crisis, uh, but you will feel what you feel. And right. validating that is the first step to managing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. One of our um, most avid listeners sent me a couple of questions, and this most avid listener happens to be my mother. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She sent me a a question. um, What can a family member, a friend do to help somebody who has trauma in their past, but they're afraid to either admit that or or get help for that? And, And that, you know, I can see that happening a lot and that is uh, certainly for a parent uh, you know it is uh, they would want very much to take care of their child and get them better and uh, it's a difficult situation to be in but um, the main thing here is um, that you know when people are feeling vulnerable and they're not ready for therapy mm-hmm. um, it may even be harmful to compel them sure. to go into therapy and um your presence in their life as somebody who cares about them in itself has a therapeutic component. It really helps. Mm-hmm. So um, though it may be frustrating uh, because you want them to get better quickly, get help, get better quickly, if they're not ready for it, then they're not ready for it. And um, you would want to do what you can to have a compassionate relationship with them where you are supporting them Um, helping them regulate their emotions by being kind, caring, and giving them positive, compassionate attention. And that in itself can uh, cause you to, you know, feel stressed. Uh, It might uh, make you impatient, frustrated. And when you feel, um, and if you feel, and not everybody, if you feel that you no longer have it in you and you're frustrated, that would be a time you would want to back out. Mm-hmm. So you don't end up getting into arguments, shouting matches, um, compelling somebody to go and get help because that in itself can sometimes be traumatic. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a complex situation which you may need help to navigate and you might want to see a therapist so that you know that your boundaries are in the right place. So the boundaries are important. You want to care for this person but also not have... Uh, your own mental health affected, which can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, caring for somebody with complex trauma can um, be stressful enough that people will go into anxiety and depression mm-hmm. themselves. Do you think there was a mass traumatization of populations due to COVID? Uh, I, I, I believe so. I think um, the stress that people went through from COVID um, definitely caused an increase in mental illness. Now, most of us have been exposed to COVID, and COVID itself uh, is a stressful event physiologically. Uh, so we had this interesting experience in that 
uh, I think we were one of two places in Ohio which had an inpatient psychiatry unit dedicated to COVID-positive patients. Huh. So what, what I saw was a lot of people who had a history of mental illness who relapsed into mental illness without any signs of COVID, but when we tested them, they tested positive for COVID. So that the COVID infection, which was not symptomatic physically, was probably causing them to become um, depressed, anxious, or sometimes if they had a psychotic illness, psychotic. Wow. Um, and a lot of people had loved ones become sick, uh, go to ICU, and some of them die from COVID, and that was traumatic. Of course, the um, significant change in life, lifestyle, the restrictions, was also um, you know, difficult and, and traumatic for some people. So yes, I think as a society, we were under a lot more stress mm -hmm. uh, uh, for those three years. I think even before that, the public conversation about mental health and trauma was changing a lot. And then I think COVID really accelerated that conversation. I'm interested to hear a, a psychiatrist's take on the public perception of trauma and really just mental health in general over the past decade. So, so one of the things that we know for sure is that, you know, mental health uh, among, among the population in general and especially among young people is worse than it was 15 years ago. And it has been gradually getting worse. And um, the causes of that, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, research into that and some speculation into that, uh, the causes of that are not fully clear. Um, at least one part of that, and that is the good part, is that um, because we can talk more openly about mental health and there is somewhat, uh, th there's some reduction in stigma around having a mental health problem, more people are coming out with the fact that they are suffering from mental health problems. But I also think that mental health generally is worsening. Mm. Um, more people are attempting suicide. The number of people with overdoses in ERs has more than doubled for adults in 10 plus years, more than tripled for people under 18. So that is staggering. Mm -hmm. So there's something going on other than just people acknowledging that they have mental health problems. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I'm not going to speculate on the causes of that, but, but the mental health is changing. And I think we as a society are not doing enough to look at preventive strategies to reduce mental health problems. Mm -hmm. And the science is also not there at that level. You know, if I think of cardiovascular illness, you know, prevention is very much a part of it. You know, we start well before you have your heart attack. If you know that you have hypertension, you have high cholesterol, we'll think of getting you on medications if your risk of having, an, a, a, uh, if your risk of having a heart attack in 10 years is above a certain percentage. But with, with mental illness, um, we are not thinking so much about it. And even if we do think about it, the science is not quite there. Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't tell you what you could do to prevent schizophrenia. I mean, we, we don't really have those answers. And right. I think we need to spend more resources and time uh, to find those answers. Mm -hmm. Can you heal from trauma? And can you heal generational trauma? I'm going to answer that question. The, ans the answer to that question is yes. But again, I do this with hesitation because I don't want somebody to say, oh, well, there are people who heal from trauma. Those are the good people. You did not heal from your trauma, so there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you look at people who have suffered from trauma and they have recovered, and if the trauma is not the, a battlefield trauma, if it is not childhood sexual trauma and severe physical abuse, 
most people will be able to cite something that happened in their life which they would say was a traumatic event and felt pretty traumatic at the time that it happened. If you interview them 5 10 years down the road and say well you know what if we gave you the option of going back in time and changing that would you do it? The majority of people will say no. I don't want to change it. Because actually my life changed for the better. Something you know I found some meaning. I had a a uh, course correction in my life i met a new person something good came out of that event uh, if you look back far enough if you if you're f- far enough out of it mm-hmm. so uh, for most people uh, that is the trajectory of the trauma so i would not want people to feel that having a traumatic event is something that has set them up for mental health problem for the rest of their lives and has taken away their opportunity to experience life normally or enjoy it in fact most people with uh traumatic events that they've experienced will come and find meaning and uh actually um not want to change it and perhaps even do better mm. than what they would have done uh f- if they had never had that trauma so they need to evolve in some way yeah. or maybe be become passionate about a cause because of something that they went through. Right. They might have a different perspective. Yeah. They see the world differently. They they have uh you know uh a different resilience better coping strategies because they've tried those coping strategies to recover from that trauma mm-hmm. so all of those things can happen but for severe trauma and for some people they will not happen and that is not their fault you know if i if i think about you know um an analogy would be physical health you know if you take the bone density of somebody who is an athlete it's going to be higher than somebody who is not doing that level of work and that is because that bone has been subjected to that kind of pressure again and again and again now if they have just broken the bone that is not a time that you would want them to return to be that athletic performance you will just stop the healing process mm-hmm. and when the bone is still not fully healed you're not going to try and hit it again because it will break again Likewise, you know, somebody is recovering from trauma, you don't want to do anything that causes them to be re-traumatized. They want to be careful, they want to protect themselves. But if you heal completely from it, which would take time. This is not a process you can rush. Um then they might even be stronger and better. But, you know, not everybody will heal completely from it and we want to always approach somebody who is suffering from trauma with compassionate attention. and not with judgment to say something is wrong with you because you didn't cope with this trauma when other people did. Yeah, absolutely. I I do want to ask you about brand politics. It's a podcast you do here at WGTE. Can you explain maybe to our listeners who aren't familiar quite yet what brand politics is? What kind of issues you you dig into over there? I I started with brand politics because Uh, I view the brain in terms of different neural systems uh, which arose at different times in our evolutionary history to solve different problems. And you know, when you think of somebody, you kind of see them as this one person who is doing this, you know, he's a good person, he's a bad person, he behaves like this. But actually their behavior is an output of all those systems coming together, sometimes competing with each other, trying to override each other, and then one uh, system might win and produce one particular outcome. And at a different time another system would win and produce a different outcome. And I think it's uh interesting, entertaining to think of the brain in those terms and a number of different ideas 
can be brought forth in that context. You know, when you when you think of brain and brain politics, whether it is self-regulation, whether it's addiction, whether it is dealing with people who are having an emotional outburst, whether it's dealing with your own emotions, communication, all of those things you can think of, oh, well, it's not just two people interacting, it's two brains, which are like two realms, and each realm has... I've got five different characters. Um, they are not black and white different, but that's how I have devised it. Uh, the characters are the brain's treasurer, um, the brain's duke, the king, the ghost, and the robot. Mm-hmm. They all do different things, and each is trying to do their own agenda. And the king, if he is good at brain politics, can run the realm in the way that the realm should run. I, I was trying to kind of explain this like why do people do what they do and that's what got me interested in evolution evolutionary psychology and I was trying to explain this um, and that's why I came into psychiatry Um, and I've always tried to understand mental illness but also behavior mental wellness in the context of evolution and I really think you know sometimes people I talk to say well you know we don't believe in evolutionary psychology um, and I tell them, well, there is no other kind, you know. <laughs> all, all, all psychology is evolutionary, whether mm-hmm. you think of it in that context or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it can be helpful to think in terms of evolution. It can be entertaining, and it can give you some ideas, some perspective, which can be beneficial when you go through life in making the decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. Did it unlock a creativity doing this podcast that surprised you? I, th- I think it did. Um, so th- this, so I, I have been trying to develop this concept since 2014. I've done it with patient populations. Uh, I have. I was a resident at the Cleveland Clinic where uh, they allowed me some time to develop this and and do it in groups. Mm-hmm. So um, I really enjoyed that. Some of those stories came from that. But now that I'm doing it for an audience which is larger, which is not necessarily a patient group who is you know, sitting in front of me and is going to probably have to listen to me because they're there for that hour. Um, I, I'm trying to make it more interesting. And those stories are getting more complex. I hope more interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely, uh, you know, the amount of material I have is probably at least twice as much as I had before I started the podcast. Awesome. And I've, I'm still trying to think in my mind, like what would be a story that people would be able to listen to and conceptualize from, like the point I'm trying to get across. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Dr. Perinja, thank you so much for joining thank us here you. today. Uh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And you can take a listen to Brain Politics. You can stream that wherever you listen to your podcasts or also go to wgte.org slash brainpolitics. Okay, so we heard from the doctor. Dr. Prinja was amazing. He's awesome. His answers, they kind of like took me out of my role as an interviewer because I was just fascinated with what he was saying that like I forgot I was supposed to be talking back to him. Um, so I'm going to try not to do that with you. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to forget my role here. Okay. All right. So uh, in the interview, you did mention to him that you uh, facilitated a six-week trauma education course for the members of the Connection Center. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm interested, uh, like what you came away from that group, like new insights. Were there any powerful moments for the clients for you? Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, give me your take mm-hmm. on that. Well, well, first off, I'd just like to say that the clients aren't required to come to the Connection Center or any of the groups that we hold here. So it was very surprising to me how many members attended uh, the education group to learn more about trauma, you know, to learn about how it affects their lives. There were a lot of people who Mm -hmm. who came. Yeah. Yeah. One of the more well-attended groups, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they they were super interested in it. They wanted to know about the treatments that are available and what can be helpful for them and people that they love. It was really inspiring to see the clients being so invested in learning to understand their own experience and their experience of other people. Yeah, because a lot of them have been, well, I mean, really all of them were community mental health have been involved in therapy before, but, you know, therapy oftentimes is one-on-one, where here you're with a group of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 people, and so that group dynamic of sharing these pretty intimate parts of your past would really affect a group dynamic like I mean I'm actually thankful for having the opportunity to be a witness to the group dynamic that occurred Um, it was really inspiring to listen to them share their experiences with each other but not only that they offered each other love and support Mm. and and it was awesome Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that where you ever have a chance to be in a place where others are gathered in curiosity and vulnerability, and they're sharing their wisdom and their strength and their hope with each other with the intention to better their lives and the lives around them, I think that's a beautiful place to be. Amen. All right. Thanks for listening to the Mental Gains Podcast, guys. I am Matt Russell. I am a host, a producer, and I made the music for the episode. And I am Verna Mullins, host and producer. Chris Pfeiffer is the executive producer of the Mental Gains Podcast. Go to wgte.org slash mental gains. If you want to say hey, if you want to recommend new topics for the future, recommendations for who we should be talking to in the community, we'd love to hear from you. Bye. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.